Well, I presume by now you are all well welcomed. Uh, Before we begin this evening, I wanted to uh, do a few more introductions of people. Uh, First, to start with the teachers, for those of you who are not here this morning. On the far right, my right, all the way in the corner, is Michelle McDonald-Smith. Next to her is Rebecca Bradshaw, who will be here. She's a teacher trainee, one of our trainees. She's been helping in this course in the last year or two. She will be doing uh, sign-up interviews. uh, She'll be here four four or five days of the week. She'll be doing sign-up interviews for those of you who would like an extra interview on those days that you're not scheduled for one. Next to Rebecca is Carol Wilson and Miyoshin Kelly, Susan O'Brien. On my left is Annie Nugent, and invisible to all (laughs) except the most discerning eyes is Amy Schmidt. Amy and Annie are the two resident teachers at IMS, uh, primarily responsible for the staff, uh, work retreatants, long-term yogis during the year. So at one time or another, you may well come into some kind of contact with all of us. I wanted to also introduce uh, Jem Mara, who was part of the circle this morning She is the night contact person, which means that if there is some emergency in the middle of the night, and this is not simply feeling a little bored or lonely, (laughs) but if there's some real emergency, either a medical emergency or some severe psychological distress, uh, she is the person to contact first, and then there's a whole procedure. And so her room name is posted uh, on the bulletin board. Um, So just make make a note of that. It's just a a way of holding the place in safety. Each fall for the past twenty-eight years. there has been this wonderful gathering of Dharma practitioners. And it feels like uh, this family gathering together of people with deep connections to one another and to the Dharma, even people who perhaps are now meeting for the very first time. It's almost as if we come together as a family, the family that we always wanted. (laughs) In this rather troubled and often crazy world, this coming together for the fall course, it's as if we're creating an island of refuge. It's a group of people sharing the same values, sharing the same very deep values, of awakening, of freedom, 
of compassionate action, compassionate response. The work that we are doing in coming together is really the most important thing that can be done. Because we're working to free the mind from the entanglements of greed, of hatred, aversion, of ignorance and confusion. And these are all the forces that cause suffering for ourselves in our own lives and cause suffering in the world. Dharma practice opens us to the possibility of freedom from these entanglements. It opens us to the possibility of a genuine peace and a genuine happiness in our lives. In some way, I see our practice, practice of the Dharma, as being what I call the master game of life. Why? It explores in a very systematic and precise way the very nature of life itself. It's a way of stepping out for some time of all all our involvements and our busyness and our distractions. We take this very deep and careful look at the most basic question. What is the nature of this life? What is the nature of the mind, of the body? What is the nature of consciousness itself, of awareness? It's so rare that people take the time to examine and explore and investigate these most basic and profound questions of being alive. It's really quite amazing to think of a hundred people gathering together for six weeks or three months to be doing this. It's really a very rare event in the world. As we begin the retreat this evening, we start the formal formal beginning. It's as if we enter into a whole new land, a whole new realm, very different than the world we come from. We're entering into a land, a realm of silence which is itself a blessed relief. You know, we enter into a land of depth, of solitude. It's a land where there is a tremendous immediacy of experience. Because we're free of many of the external diversions and distractions which are so common in our ordinary lives. We're really entering into a land where we come face to face with ourselves. This can often be quite a dramatic event. And what's amazing in the silence, in the depth, in the solitude, in coming face to face with ourselves, in this greater understanding of who we are, we become more intimately connected with everyone else. Those of you who have been particularly on long retreats before know that at the end of six weeks or three months, 
that feeling of closeness that we have for everyone else on the retreat, even if we have never spoken to them, simply from the depth of the shared experience. As most of you know, this journey of awakening, this journey of liberation, is not always easy. It's not an easy task. Because we're dealing with some very strong habit forces in the mind, habituated forces and tendencies in the mind. The strong forces of desire and aversion the judging mind and comparing mind, being lost in past, being lost in the future, caught up in hope, caught up in fear. These are the tendencies that are very deeply rooted in our conditioning. And so it takes a very strong commitment, it really takes a certain fire within us to stay awake and to stay aware, and to stay mindful through all the many ups and downs of the practice. Sometimes the experience will be extremely pleasant, and you'll wish the retreat was going on for six months. At other times your experience will be extremely unpleasant, and you'll wonder why you ever came in the first place. Sometimes the mind is really concentrated, We settle into a place of deep, deep stillness. And sometimes the mind is completely restless and agitated, and you can hardly sit still. It's all part. It's all part of the journey. It's all part of the unfolding. For me, a great help or a quality that has been a great help over all the many years of my practice and sustained the commitment is a quality which I think is worth recognizing right at the beginning and working to cultivate and strengthen it. And that is the quality of interest. It's that deep willingness and even a passion to understand ourselves, to understand our minds, to understand our hearts. There was a 10th or 11th century Japanese woman poet by the name of Izumi, and she wrote something which just captures uh, the power of this interest. She wrote, The moon at dawn solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. And I think that's just a wonderful description of this meditative process, this meditative journey. Knowing ourselves completely, no part left out. It's the feeling that we bring and the intention that we bring to our practice, that with whatever arises, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant, whether it's easy, whether it's difficult, 
whether it's in the mind, in the body, that with whatever arises, there's this willingness, there's this intention, let me see this, let me understand this. For many years, especially at the beginning of my meditative career, I really struggled with the difficulties that are common to everyone. You know, seeing all the various defilements in my mind and the pains in my body and the restlessness. And I was in the mode, I was in this struggle mode, you know, thinking that I was a bad yogi or a bad person or I couldn't do it. A very big change happened for me in my practice when I realized that the difficulties that arise for all of us, they are absolutely inevitable. That the difficulties that arise for us are not a problem. They're not a mistake. They are simply part of the path. Even Moggallana, Maha Moggallana, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha, after he first met the Buddha and he was practicing, before he got enlightened, he went to the Buddha and he was complaining about sleepiness, about drowsiness. You know, oh Lord Buddha, I'm so sleepy, what should I do? <laughs> and the Buddha gave him this list of things to do, which we'll talk about later. Of course, with Moggallana, a week later, he was enlightened. <laughs> so that's the happy ending to most of those stories. But it just struck me, he was this great being, you know, clearly with all the, all the qualities of mind, capable of becoming a chief disciple of the Buddha. And even he was struggling with the same kind of stuff that we do. Difficulties on the path are not a mistake, they're not a problem, they're just what happens. And at a certain point, this was really uh, tremendously helpful for me, so I offer it to you right at the beginning of the retreat to see if you can remember this over these next weeks. At a certain point, I became much happier in seeing the defilements in my mind than not seeing them. So instead of the self-judgment, instead of giving myself a hard time for all the difficulties, at a certain point this shift happened, and I just became so happy to see what was going on, rather than being lost in it. It really brought about a tremendous amount of joy, even in the midst of whatever it might be. Oh, pride. Oh, good. Envy. I'm seeing it. (laughs) Whatever it was. Because then it gets interesting. That's this quality of interest. We begin to explore ourselves. No part left out. We also begin to see the transparency of it all, the emptiness of it all. We often speak of the great effort, even heroic effort, that's needed on this path. Now, it's not an easy thing to do. To awaken from 
the dreamlike state of our confusion, of our ignorance, of our lack of mindfulness. So it takes a great effort. But we can also understand Dharma practice from another side. We often use the language of heroic effort, but we can also use the language of surrender, of opening. It's an opening where practice opening to just what there is in any moment. At one point in my practice, I began each sitting with the reminder to myself, and it was a really helpful reminder. Joseph, just surrender to the Dharma. Whatever arises in this sitting is fine. Just open to it. And that reminder to surrender to the Dharma was so helpful in establishing a certain kind of balance. Because as we practice this opening, as we practice this surrendering to the unfolding process, over time we also learn to trust it. And then it becomes this tremendous sense of ease. We are really trusting the process. And this trust in the unfolding process, the trust in our practice, rests on one crucial understanding. And if you get what I'm about to say, you've gotten everything. You could almost leave. And that is, we are not practicing to get something. We're practicing letting go. We're practicing not holding on. We're not practicing to get anything. There's nowhere in the Buddhist text where he says, grasp. So if we can remember this, that's that quality of surrender, of opening to, of simply letting go. Everything is arising and passing by itself. There are two attitudes of mind which create or establish a very strong and solid foundation for this application of interest, the willingness to open to whatever it is that arises. The first of these attitudes, qualities of mind, is patience. Understanding, and we'll repeat this again and again because it's so important, understanding that it's completely natural to go through the many ups and downs of practice. You know, many, there are many swings and cycles. Sometimes you feel happy and inspired, other times you feel discouraged and depressed. And this will cycle through. So we need patience. Patience not in the sense of stoic endurance, but patience in the sense of constancy. Just staying steady with whatever it is. There's another phenomena which 
requires patience. And it's worth learning to recognize it when it arises. This is the phenomenon which we call yogi mind. Now, in the course of these six weeks or three months, you will undoubtedly have at least one and maybe multiple yogi mind attacks. And yogi mind is when the mind just becomes obsessed about something. It locks onto something and cannot let go. And it blows whatever it is up out of all proportion to the reality of the situation. I don't have the right toothpaste. And the mind obsesses. And this happens. This, this is not an exaggeration. We had one yogi on a retreat. It wasn't at IMS, it was at another place. It was disturbed by the uh, planes going overhead. So this yogi wrote this intense note to the manager of the retreat. Please write to the airlines to reroute the airline paths. <laughs> and this was for real. The mind just... If ever you feel something is of overwhelming importance, chance it's yogi mind. So just to recognize it and to learn how to have a certain sense of humor and patience with it. It's important to remember that everything we experience, all the ups and downs, all the swings and cycles, all the yogi mind phenomena, it's all simply a display of changing conditions. Now, everything that you'll feel and think and sense in your body, everything that arises over these next weeks and months is simply a display of changing conditions. It's like the weather changing. It will all arise and pass away, just like all the changes in the weather. Don't be fooled even by the great thunder and lightning storms. It's still all just changing conditions. We can make a great space for it all. The Buddha spoke often of the great importance of patience. He said in in the text that patience leads to nibbana, patience leads to enlightenment. So don't undervalue this quality. It has tremendous value for us in the practice. So the second great support for us, support for the commitment necessary to sustain our interest, to sustain our openness, first is patience. The second quality which supports us to a very great degree is the basic attitude of metta. That feeling of basic friendliness. It's not necessarily some great elaborate state. It's that very simple 
basic feeling of friendliness to ourselves, to others. That sense of goodwill. There's, there's an anonymous samurai poem written because they don't know when it was written, if it was anonymous. But one of the lines in this poem, which I think in one way sums up much of what we're doing here, says, I make my mind my friend. And I love that line. This expressing this quality that we're cultivating here. I make my mind my friend. If we did nothing else for this whole time except to make our minds our friend, this would be a great accomplishment. (coughs) Every week we'll be doing a guided metta meditation, one, one evening a week. And so it will be helpful to incorporate in one way or another, and you can discuss this with your teachers, be very helpful to incorporate the metta practice into your meditation. The most basic principles in Buddhism, this is like the rock bottom basis of the teachings, is that all situations and all experiences arise when the necessary conditions are present. That all experiences arise out of conditions, and that these conditions are always changing. For now, in coming here for this time, we have the time, we have the resources, We have the interest, we have the motivation to undertake this Dharma practice. We need to see these conditions really as a great gift and a great blessing in our lives and not simply take these conditions for granted. And it's amazing coming together and just think for a moment of all that was necessary for you to arrange in your lives, all the conditions that were necessary to come together for you to be able to be here, not insignificant. It's a tremendous gift, a tremendous blessing. If we reflect on this, that this situation arises out of conditions and that conditions are always changing, then we don't take it for granted. And we've seen so many places in the world where people were just going on in their lives, leading their ordinary, daily lives. And then in a day, in a week, in a moment, something can happen and everything is turned upside down. Now it could be a natural disaster, it could be a serious illness, it could be the beginning of war or violence of some kind. This happens, and it is happening in the world today. Reflecting on the blessing and the transiency of our present good circumstances in being here for this time, reflecting on it in a conscious way, 
creates a certain sense of spiritual ardency. So we're not just coasting in our time here, but we see the rarity, the preciousness of this time. It helps to really light the fire of awakening within us. And this reflection also helps us undertake this journey with all its many ups and downs from a place of tremendous respect, respect for ourselves and respect for each other. And this respect comes from the deep recognition and appreciation that what brings us all to these circumstances is the depth of our own paramis. A parami is a Pali word and is often translated as perfections. But in a more fundamental meanings, meaning, parami means accumulated goodness. It's helpful to recognize, not with a sense of pride, but with a sense of appreciation, all of our own accumulated goodness, which created the conditions which created these conditions for us to be practicing together. And so we undertake the practice with a sense of self-respect. We have each created the conditions in our lives for this to happen. We undertake the practice with respect for each other. Out of the silence and the stillness and the awareness of this retreat can come a level of wisdom, a level of understanding that really brings peace to ourselves and also a great compassionate care for the suffering in the world. And even as we proceed in our practice, step by step, breath by breath, simply staying in the present moment, it's helpful to hold the larger vision of what is possible. Awakening is possible. Enlightenment is possible. Peace, happiness, whatever word you choose to describe what is of the highest value Closing, I just want to read something. It's from a book came out years ago, and perhaps some of you are familiar with it. It's called Mount Analog uh, by René Domal, a French author. And the book describes this journey up a mountain as a, it's an allegory, really, you know, for the spiritual journey, the spiritual path. He uses the climbing of the mountain as his basic metaphor. He says, keep your eye fixed on the way to the top, but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends upon the first. Don't think you've arrived just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal because the first step 
depends upon the last. So as a way now of formally entering into the retreat, Miyoshin is going to talk about the refuges and the precepts. Joseph used a word that expressed how I feel in being here, like it's a blessing. It feels such a blessing to have this opportunity to come and practice in this way with you, to be able to share the Dharma in this way. Always at the beginning of these three-month retreats, whether it's in the way of being a yogi or a teacher, I find myself feeling very humbled as one sits in the presence of the Dhamma, which we often tend to really start to feel as we enter into the retreat. There's both the awesome nature of it, the vastness, and the unknown of it. And for each of us, we've really listened to that fire within us to get ourselves here. And so tonight, we will be giving voice to our deepest aspirations of heart and mind, the stating of our intentions through the taking of the refuges and the precepts taking a moment to really turn our minds towards that which inspires us. The word refuge itself implies safety, protection, taking shelter. We live in a pretty volatile world and may at times have struggled with where we can take refuge, what we can place our hearts upon, what we can trust. At times, the difficulty may have been even in being with our own minds, that they can be volatile, explosive, that we at times turn on ourselves very viciously. Many times we may have taken refuge in places that don't bring us peace, bring us understanding, where we take refuge in our relationships, our careers, money. We take refuge in becoming something. We might have even taken refuge in pleasant states, And as all this is subject to change, we will often find ourselves devastated, broken, when the refuge is shattered, 
So where can we take refuge? What can we place our hearts upon? The Buddha talked about there being three places of refuge. He talked about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. These get called the triple gems. Gems being that which is precious, beautiful, and indestructible. I'd like to speak just a little bit about each of these aspects of taking refuge. The first, in taking refuge in the Buddha. In taking refuge in the Buddha, it doesn't mean that the Buddha is going to save us, that it's a guarantee to liberation. He said it quite clearly in a way that didn't mean that we take refuge in the Buddha through blind faith. He said, and this is from the Dhammapada, many persons indeed driven by fear move quickly to mountains, forests, the parks, and trees of shrines as a refuge. That is not a safe refuge. It is not the best refuge. Having come to this refuge, one is not freed from all suffering. But one who goes to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, by right wisdom and insight, perceives the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is the safe refuge. This is the best refuge. Having come to this refuge, one is freed from all suffering. So it depends on our efforts. What the Buddha does is inspires us. He was a man that lived over 2,500 years ago. A man that, although he came from a very privileged background, he still saw that there was suffering in the world. He saw that there was suffering in his own mind. And he dedicated his life to realizing the end of suffering. That famous night under the Bodhi tree, he realized this for himself. And then he spent the rest of his life sharing this path. As a fellow human being, he can inspire us to the same capacity within ourselves, the same potential within each of us. Buddha nature, the awakened mind. I know at times for myself, when I'm sitting and get caught in states of distress, to remember that there is within this same mind the potential for liberation. It helps me to soften, to accept, not to fight with my experience. We can take refuge in the qualities that the awakened mind embraces. Loving-kindness, compassion, wisdom, equanimity. Learning to call forth 
these qualities in our life. Aligning our hearts with these qualities. Taking refuge in the Dhamma. Taking refuge in the Dhamma is taking refuge in the way things are, the truth, the lawfulness of life, that things are unfolding according to natural law. This can help us to surrender to the process. It can help us to trust in the unfolding that's happening. What's happening is not a mistake. It's arising out of conditions. Honoring this life. We come to realize that the Dhamma is not something separate from this mind-body process. The Dhamma is available here and now. Taking refuge in the Sangha. There's a few different meanings to Sangha. In the highest sense, it's taking refuge in all those beings who have walked this path before us and have realized freedom, liberation, have awakened. It's like plugging into the light socket, remembering that there are all those who walked this path before us. I know this was incredibly valuable to me at one time when I was sitting in a state of struggle, really lost in my own troubles. And I looked up and I saw a picture of the Buddha walking with his alms bowl, followed along behind him were many monks walking single file. And it was just that memory that, yes, many people have done this before me. They too struggled in the ways that I struggled. And they too found that capacity within to face their deepest fears, to face the trials and tribulations that appear. It's also taking refuge in the ordained Sangha, the monks and the nuns who have carried these, this practice, these teachings, for all of this time. It's also taking refuge in our intentions in coming here, in hearing the teachings and doing this practice. There's been so many moments of mindfulness, so much effort, so much courage that has been brought forth. And we too join this lineage. The courage that we bring is helpful to the people who will follow along behind us. 
I know for me it's a powerful moment in a retreat to take refuge, an expression of reverence, appreciation, joy. I'm giving voice, letting my voice be heard. And it's honoring of the deepest aspirations of heart and mind. In coming here as a community, we also live by the five training precepts, training guidelines that the Buddha offered. These are very basic guidelines that are relevant to anyone who wants to live a happy and peaceful life. These guidelines are really the foundation of our practice. All of us have sat before and are probably quite familiar with how, as we're sitting in silence, things that we've done that have been unskillful in our lives tend to resurface. We remember them. We remember how we felt. Guilt can arise. So these guidelines help us to live a life that is based upon living in harmony, non-harming, recognizing the truth of interdependence, how we don't live in a vacuum, how what we do and say has an effect on the world around us, has an effect on our inner worlds. As we practice, our awareness grows of the implications of harmful actions, the consequences. I find as I practice, it becomes easier and easier to take the five training guidelines to heart as an exploration, not as commandments, but as a way of investigating how I can live a life of integrity, how I can practice in my daily life so that my practice is not just limited to sitting on the cushion. So the first of the precepts is to refrain from killing or harming living beings, the taking of life not just being limited to human beings. And yet if we looked at it on just the most basic level of human beings, and the world was to live by it, what a different world it would be. We take it beyond just human beings into all forms of life, which helps us to develop a reverence for all life, to respect different forms of life, and to learn to live in a way where we aren't putting ourselves in the face of needing to take life, 
We learn in really simple ways. We learn about doing things like putting insect repellent on so that we're not tempted to smash that mosquito that's annoying us. We learn to take care with food that it's not left in ways that are going to attract bugs that will then cause greater harm when we have to get rid of the bugs. In our lives, we learn to see where it is that we struggle with this, where it becomes difficult or challenging. But letting our hearts turn towards metta or loving kindness for all beings. The second precept is to refrain from taking that which has not been offered or given. In many ways, seems like quite a basic precept again, that we don't take other people's things. And yet sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes we sit in the place of entitlement. We sit putting our needs before another, and we might simply take something. Times we might be deceitful about this, taking it when we think no one's looking. This precept can really guide us towards a life of non-greed, where we value material possessions, the one who has possessions, being able to rejoice in their happiness if someone has something we want, rather than thinking we need to take it. It helps us to bring respect into our relationships. The third precept is to refrain from sexual misconduct. Sex is a powerful energy. I'm sure we're all aware of it. And probably many times in our lives have done something unskillful through our sexual energy, where somebody else became hurt or harmed. We find evidence of abuse of sexual energy all around us in the world, you know, in, in big forms such as child abuse, rape, and other forms such as simply manipulating another person through our sexual energy. Sometimes it can even be what seems like quite harmless flirtation. And yet it could provoke jealousy, fear, where someone isn't quite sure what's happening, what's going on. And so we need to really learn to be with this energy so it becomes included in our spiritual journey and is not a monster sitting outside the door. Really learning to be with this energy. And as a form of support for doing this, during the retreat, we abstain from any intentional sexual activity. It gives a container for us to be in touch with this energy, to learn to bear witness 
without just being propelled by it, without causing harm to others. And out of this, we learn how to be more skillful in our lives, not being at the mercy of this energy. The fourth precept is to refrain from false speech, speech that is harsh, harsh, gossip, useless, lies. Speech, again, is a very powerful energy where we can either cause healing, harmony, or we can cause a lot of harm. We've probably all had those moments where we've lashed out in anger and then regretted instantly what we've done. Because the words have such power that it can take a long time for healing at times. And so we live with the pain. The other person lives with the pain. Sometimes we say things that are very harsh. The Burmese have a, a, a lovely saying that I like, speech that crushes the, lovely, the, the loving kindness between two people. This is harsh speech where we forget for a moment and we come from an agitated heart, an angry place. It may even be scolding someone, but not from the place of compassion, from that anger and bitterness. Speech is a huge area of practice for most of us. Fortunately, during the retreat, we have some protection that we enter into the noble silence. It helps us in many ways to see how when we aren't aware that all of these thoughts that we'll be having in silence are often the thoughts we'd, or the, the speech that we would have in our lives where we move into idle chatter, simply saying whatever pops into our mind. So we get protected from this. We will have the opportunity to speak in interviews, in the hall. And sometimes it's challenging. We might find that we're just wanting to make our experience sound a little bit better you know, maybe we start reporting sitting a little bit longer or I'll just start stretching the truth in some way, maybe to help us have a sense of feeling better about ourselves, wanting to look good. When we don't practice right speech, it really helps to perpetuate delusion that we can become confused. We might start believing the stories that we tell ourselves, the lies that we tell ourselves. Or it may be that it's undermining someone else having faith in their own perceptions if we're telling a lie. So in the retreat, just working with it in the simple ways of honoring the noble silence, noticing how there still can be those impulses to communicate, seeing if we can just let those go, to 
just being with ourselves, the gift of silence. It's not an oppression, but a gift, a gift that we can relax into. And watching our speech when we do speak. One description of right speech is speech that is both true true and useful. In our culture, we often get attached to speaking the truth. It's our truth, and we want to speak it. And sometimes it can really be unskillful, not helpful, can create harm. So speaking that which is both true and useful helps us to have the whole context. Look at the whole picture. Again, in this, we're not holding ourselves as being separate. And this is what these precepts really help us to do, to be a part of all life. The fifth precept is to refrain from the use of intoxicants. Intoxicants cloud the mind, dull the mind. And because of this, they undermine our practice. They cause confusion in the mind. And when there's confusion, these are the times when we're more likely to hurt somebody, to do something that's unskillful. In our practice, we find greater clarity. So the use of intoxicants can really undermine this. And just to say that this doesn't refer to medication. So if you're on some form of medication, please continue. Tonight we'll be taking these five precepts. And then in a few days' time, we'll have the opportunity to take eight precepts, which is something that is commonly done practicing in the Buddhist tradition. That um, I'll just speak briefly about the, the three other precepts, and you can start to give some consideration to these other precepts, to something that you might want to take on to help strengthen your commitment in being here. The, the other three uh, precepts just give a little bit more of a container to the retreat. Uh, One precept in particular refers to not eating at incorrect times, which means that we don't take an evening meal. There can still be uh, juice that is taken or, or herbal tea that is drunk, but that we aren't consuming another meal at that time. For some of us, it isn't possible because of certain body conditions. But for some of us, it might give us the opportunity to just continue on in a steady way, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, or just simply sipping a cup of tea. So the other three precepts are to refrain from eating at the wrong times, which I just mentioned, Uh, to refrain from entertainment, beautification, and adornment. There's not a lot of entertainment around. It is surprising, though, how, how we can hold things in the form of entertainment. When I was a nun in Burma, I went through a period of extreme boredom. And I found myself reading from cover 
to cover a Buddhist dictionary. And part of what kept pulling me there was a sense of entertainment. And so it really took me looking at my motivation at times to see, was I simply wanting to entertain myself? Beautification. I mean, we'll see each other's feet a lot. Um, But we can find that there's ways that we just try and pump our self-image up through making ourselves more beautiful. The beauty of the heart that we're... The beauty that we're turning to is the natural radiance of the heart. And so this just helps to remind us when we're moving into a really self-referencing form of looking at things. The last precept is to refrain from lying on high or luxurious sleeping places. We don't have a lot of high and luxurious sleeping places here. The beds are pretty adequate. It's probably not a problem. It just points towards how, you know, you can want that extra pillow. You can want to buffer yourself into more comfort out of a way of not wanting to just simply be with that which is unpleasant. And I know I have certainly seen in my own life where, you know, waking up in a really comfortable place, it's hard to get out of bed. No, it's pretty comfortable there. I like it. So it's just another means of support that we're not indulging in these sense pleasures. So for tonight, it will just be the five precepts. If some of you have come with that commitment to do the eight precepts, then please you know, undertake, start living those precepts now. And in a few days' time, all of us will have that opportunity. There's a, a sign-up sheet on the board. The kitchen will need to know to adjust food quantities So let it be something that you consider. And then in a few days' time, we can do this together. So uh, Susan now is going to lead us in the taking of the refuges and precepts, which is really giving voice to our intentions in being here. So hopefully you've all had a chance to pick up one of these forms with the chant, the metta chant on one side and the refuges and precepts on the other. But if you don't have one, we have some extras here. Does anyone need one? You might just keep your hands up so they can be passed back to you or over.
So we'll start with the homage, which we'll do three times. And for just the first time, we'll do it call and response, where I'll chant first a word or two, and then pause, and you can repeat. And then the second time we take it, and the third time, we'll just all do it together. Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambudasa In taking the refuges, I will offer each of them a line at a time, and then you'll repeat the line. Budang Saranangachami Tamang Saranangachami Sangang Saranangachami Dutiampi Budang Saranangachami Dutiampi Damang Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami Tatiampi Budang Saranangachami Tatiampi Damang Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami And as we take the precepts, again, I'll offer them call and response, a word or two at a time, and then pause for you to repeat. Panati Pata Vairamani Sika Padang Samadhyami And the second precept. Adina Dana Vairamani Sika Padang Samadhyami And the third precept. Abramacharya Vairamani Sika Padang Samadhyami the fourth precept, Musawada, Musawada. 
Kwe Ramani, Sika Padang, Samadhyami. And the fifth precept, Sura Maria, Maja Pamadatana, Kwe Ramani, Sika Padang, Samadhyami. And we'll close with the dedication, which again I'll offer call and response. Idang me silang, Magapalananyanasa, Pachayo ho tu, ho tu. Thank you. It's lovely to hear you all. So there's about a half an hour now until uh, we'll have a a sitting this evening at 9.15, which I invite you all to come to. And just so you know, in case you've just arrived and are very tired, um, we won't go all the way till 10 o'clock tonight, so it'll be a slightly shorter sitting. And it'll just be a silent sitting tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.